This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 13 as we continue our series of studies in Jeremiah. We're looking tonight at chapter 13 verses 1 through 27. Hear the word of God. Thus says the Lord to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates, as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. And I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, Even so will I spoil the pride of Judah. And the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. Whereas the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. They would not listen. You shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every jar shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, Do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will dash them one against another, fathers and sons together, declares the Lord. I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Say to the king and queen mother, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev are shut up with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? What will you say when they set as head over you those whom you yourself have taught to be friends to you? Will not pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity 
that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. And the Ethiopian changed his skin or the leopard his spots. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. This is your lot. The portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. I've seen your abominations, your adulteries, neighings, your lewd whorings on the hills and the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. How long will it be before you are made clean? Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to your word this evening, this late hour of the day. Give us clarity in our thinking. And Father, most of all, give us your spirit to warm our hearts, to receive your truth. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are accustomed to the prophets communicating with the announcement, Thus says the Lord, followed by words, followed by an oracle, followed by a message from God. Sometimes God communicated through his prophets, not in terms of word, but in terms of symbol. We see this later in Jeremiah. We also see this in the prophet Ezekiel, uh, where the Lord commanded him in Ezekiel 4 to take a brick and set it up and engrave or draw on it Jerusalem and then lay siege to that brick set up siege works against it. Basically, a small model of a siege with that brick representing Jerusalem. And he was to set up siege works against it. And then he was to lie on one side for a long time, taking upon himself the suffering of Jerusalem, of, uh, of uh, Israel. And then on his other side, taking upon himself the suffering of Judah. And all of this, you know, was to be a sign to the people of God's judgment. Or his haircut, where he was to get his haircut and was to uh, disperse it three different ways, burn some of it, scatter some of it, so forth. All of which was designed, again, to communicate to the Lord. Well, we have that here in Jeremiah. Uh, A couple of symbols that are designed to communicate God's truth to his people. And as we look at these symbols, strange as they may seem, uh, they do have a word to say to Jerusalem. And they have a word to say to us. Uh, as we look at them, at these signs, uh, they do communicate even to this day. So let's take a look at them. Uh, in the first place, we have here the symbol of a loincloth. Now, even the word itself, the Hebrew word translated loincloth, could be translated as a number of different things, a girdle, a belt, uh, but it seems best to understand it in the context as, as a loincloth or some sort of skirt-like undergarment, basically worn around the waist that went down to about the knees, that would be worn under uh, a tunic and then a cloak or, or outer, outer garment. So in a sense, it basically was underwear uh, that the Lord told to Jeremiah to go and purchase, you know, go, go, get, go get yourself some new underwear, uh, linen loincloth, and put it on and be sure not to wash it. Or at least get get it wet. It's hard to know exactly what the Lord's intent was. Why not get it wet? It may be uh, that you, you don't want to do anything to take the newness off of it, the clean the cleanness of, off of it at first. 
Oh, or it may be that water might uh, already uh, or start or accelerate the, the decomposition process. At any rate, keep it dry, put it on, don't wash it, don't get it wet. Uh, and then the word of the Lord came back uh, to him a second time in verse 3. Okay, take this, this garment you've bought that you're wearing. And he says in verse 4, go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. Find some place to tuck this loincloth out of the way, kind of hide it away. Now, question about the Euphrates uh, there, whether it's a reference to the actual Euphrates River, which would have been several hundred miles away, a considerable journey. You couldn't just go over there in you know, 30 minutes and tuck this thing away and come back. This was, this was days or weeks journey, and that could be the Lord's intent, that Jeremiah disappears for a while, then comes back and then has to make the trip again. It's also possible that the name uh, Parath that's used there is referring not so much to the Euphrates, but to some place uh, close by to, uh, to Anathoth, to his town there near Jerusalem. It would have been a much shorter journey. Either way, the point is basically the same. And it does seem, given the uh, proximity of the Euphrates River with Babylon and the Babylonians, uh, to, to have a little more significance if it was, in fact, the Euphrates River uh, and Jeremiah had to make this journey. Well, he says, take this and go and, and hide it. Put it somewhere in the rocks where nobody will find it and leave it there. Step three, uh, verse six, after many days, the Lord said to me, get up, arise, go to the Euphrates, take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. And so I went to the Euphrates and I dug, took the loincloth in the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Well, not exactly surprising, uh, but that's what he found. The Lord had him go through this as a symbolic gesture. Now, what does all this mean? Well, the Lord explains uh, in verses 8 and 9 and following, Even so, I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. And he really seems to get to the point in verse 11. What's the significance of the symbolism? Look at verse 11. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Judah, cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. Seems the symbolism basically is this. The Lord made Israel, made Judah, his people, whom he redeemed, whom he brought out of Israel, with whom he entered into this covenant, to be close to him, to stick closely to him, to be in closest contact with the Lord, not be separated from the Lord, and to be clean for the Lord, to be his people, to live and walk and work and raise their families closely in close contact with him. But as you know, Israel and Judah uh, broke their contract, their uh, contract, a covenant with the Lord, uh, both in terms of their own idolatry, which Jeremiah has addressed, in terms of their own immorality, which was often tied up with their idolatry, and in terms of their politics, in terms of alliances that they formed with the nations around them. Ironically, even looking to Egypt itself, from which they had come out of slavery, as a means of help, a means of deliverance, and looking to the Assyrians or the Babylonians or whoever it might be, rather than looking to the Lord. So this nation that was to stick closely to her God, instead is worshiping idols, is involved in all kinds of violations of God's law in terms of their personal lives, and also as a nation engaging in these alliances, trust, 
uh, in the nations around them. And so it's, it's particularly uh, poignant that uh, this, this loincloth representing Israel is separated from Jeremiah. It's buried in the dirt, and it's ruined. It becomes very dirty, and this, the, the symbolism is clear as you think about it. You know, because of your association with these nations around you, taking in their practices, taking in their lifestyles, you've been ruined. You've become unclean. You're, you're no longer fit for me to wear. You're no longer fit to be close to me. You see, the loincloth uh, represents Israel's uncleanness, her uncleanness, her contamination through her disloyalty to the Lord, contamination with the nations around. That certainly speaks a word to us today as well. Because you and I, like Israel, like Judah, like Jerusalem, still live in the world. Uh, Like them, we are in the world, though not of the world. But also like them, you and I face the very real prospect, perhaps even without our knowing it, of being shaped, influenced, contaminated, by the world around us. Now, Israel and Judah were in the world, but they were to be distinct. They were to be a light to the nations. They were to show the world a better way. They were to point to the living God. They were to point to the grace of God. They were to be a missions body. But instead, it seemed like all too often, the world was sending its missionaries to the people of God, and they were buying the message. They were becoming like the world. Well, too often the same is true of the church. We are to be the light of the world. We are to let our light shine before men so that they see who we are as the people of God, that they see that we're different, that we're changed, that we have a life, that we, that we live differently, that we love one another, we love the Lord, we've experienced His salvation, we have joy in this world. But, all too often we're like that soiled linen garment that was buried in the dirt All too often, instead of influencing people around us, and the church as a whole, instead of influencing the world, is influenced by the world. It really is its tragic. It's very sad when you read statistics that among professing believers, various negative indicators are no different or very little different, or in some cases worse, than the world. Now, I know, as well as you, that not every person who professes to be a Christian is a Christian. You have a lot of people who claim to be Christians and are not regenerate, and it's no surprise that they live no differently than their professed unbelieving neighbor. We all understand that. But all too often, even among those who sincerely profess faith in Christ, the lifestyle, the devotion, the trust, what they're counting on, what they're looking to, is not really any different than the nations around them. Profess faith in the Lord, and yet the way they live, the things they worship, and those whom they look to, they're different from the world, and certainly not the Lord. And so let the loincloth be a warning, not just to Judah, not just to Jerusalem, but to us as well. You know, it was Paul who, who warned us when he said, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, we don't separate ourselves out from the world. We don't live in a monastic, separatist existence. So how do we avoid being contaminated by the world? Well, we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Word of God. We need to know what we believe and why. We need to live daily in conscious dependence on the Lord to be determined 
that the world is not going to shape us, that we are going to stand and, by God's grace, shape the world. Our young people need to know that. We need to know that. All too often, the, the world's pressure overwhelms believers, overwhelms the church. So remember the loincloth. There's a second symbol that we find here, a symbolic uh, statement or gesture or picture that Jeremiah gives, and it's the symbol of the jars of wine. Look at verse 12. The Lord comes back to Jeremiah, speak to them this. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jar shall be filled with wine. Now, that seems to be a proverb or a truism. Uh, and, and because the people respond, they will say to you, do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? Do we not indeed know? Uh, well, of course, Jeremiah, you know, to render that in modern English, they said, duh, you know, what's, every jar is supposed to be filled with wine. Now, whether this was a, whether this was a barroom slogan uh, or just a, a proverb, well, the purpose of a, of, a, of a jar of wine is to be filled with wine. Uh, they seem to accept that as commonplace. You know, this is no revelation, Jeremiah. We know that. Of course, every jar will be filled with wine. What's he doing? He's led them out on a limb. And now he's about to saw off the limb. Verse 13, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So basically the Lord turns it around through Jeremiah and says, you are those jars. And I'm going to fill you with wine to the point of drunkenness, to the point where you are unable to defend yourself, to the point where you are incoherent, to the point where you don't know what's going on. And then, verse 14, I will dash them one against the other. I'll take these jars and I'll break them against each other. No respecter of persons, fathers and sons together, young and old alike. I will not pity or spare or have compassion. I should not destroy them. What's he saying here? Well, if the loincloth was a problem of uncleanness, of being spoiled, this is a function of purpose. What's the purpose of the jar of wine? Well, it's to contain wine. We're talking jars. You know, Jesus, the wedding of Cana, fills these jars with wine. But what's the problem? Judah, the people of God, are not carrying out their purpose. Even those jars of wine carry out their purpose. They're filled with the wine. But the Lord says, I'm going to take you and just fill you with wine. You'll just be as if you were drunk. You're just clueless. And I'm going to smash you in judgment because you're not fulfilling the purpose. Even those wine jars fulfill their purpose. But you have not fulfilled your purpose, and therefore I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to smash you. This comes down to a question of purpose. First, uncleanness. Second, a matter of purpose, fulfilling our purpose. Judah was not fulfilling the purpose for which God had called her, for which God had saved her to live for him, to reflect him, to be his light in the world, to be his people, to be a witness to the world. They simply had abandoned that purpose. They were living for themselves. They were living for their pleasure. They were living for their false gods. Well, we need to be careful, too, that we don't forget the purpose for which God has created us, for which God has saved us in Christ. We are to be a kingdom of priests. We are to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his light. Now, we do that through the various callings to which God has called us. We may work at this job or that, this vocation or that, but 
regardless, we are serving the Lord. We are to bring glory to him. We are to honor him in the way that we do what he has called us to do. We are to honor him as we gather on the Lord's day to worship him. That is part of our purpose, to bring praise to him, to declare his praises among the nations. All of these things are the purposes for which he's called us. And yet there's always the danger that as Christians, we forget that. That our purpose is to glorify God. Our purpose is to enjoy him forever, as we say so simply in our confession, in our catechism. We begin to think our purpose is to live for myself. My purpose is to seek my pleasure. My purpose is to seek my interests. My purpose in life is to seek those things that build me up, that make me secure, that make me comfortable, that elevate me. The look out for number one kind of mentality. Again, a function of purpose. Or a church who forgets her purpose is to glorify God among the nations. And it becomes sort of a smug holy club. And much like the Jews who looked with contempt uh, on those around them, even as they were stained by them. But we need to be, be careful that we don't forget our purpose in these jars Fulfill their purpose when they were filled with wine. Yes, that's their purpose. But you, Judah, you, my people, the Lord says, have strayed from your purpose. You've abandoned your purpose, those things for which I have made you in the world. Now, at this point, God abandons the symbols and just gives them some straight talk. Verses 15 through 27. It starts out with a choice. Enough symbols, let's talk. Starts with a choice in verses 15, 16, and 17. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Don't be arrogant. Don't lift up your neck against him. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness. Before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. You see the image here. The image is the sun is going down. It's twilight. There's not much light left. Darkness is coming quickly. And so hear the Lord. Give glory to the Lord before the darkness comes in. And while you look for light, it turns to gloom and makes it deep darkness. But, he says, if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Choice. The light is fading. It's your last opportunity to repent, to listen to the Lord. Or if you choose not to do that, Jeremiah says, I will weep for you because your destruction is coming. It begins with a choice. Well, what would judgment look like? If they continue in their rebellion, what does the judgment look like? What's going to happen? Well, he specifies some things. First of all, it means deposition, the deposing of their leadership. Say to the king, this is verse 18, say to the king and queen mother. Now, this is not left vague. We know who this is. This is Jehoiachin. This is his mother, Nehushtah. You can read about it, 2 Kings 24, uh, where they were taken into captivity and a puppet king placed on the throne in Jerusalem. Take a lowly seat. Get off your thrones. You know, take a, take a camp chair. Take a lowly seat. For your beautiful crown has come from, down from your head. The cities of the Negev, which is the southern region south of Jerusalem, southern desert-like region of, is of Judah, are shut up with none to open them. They're under siege. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile, which at that point in 597 B.C. was was hyperbole. 
The king, the queen mother, were deposed, were taken into exile. A puppet king set up uh, after Jehoiachin, and uh, some of the leaders were taken away. But even at this point, there were still people there in Jerusalem. There was not an absolute exile, and yet that's basically what was coming. But certainly here, with the king and queen mother removed, it might as well be, because Judah is not its own. Judah is now under the power of a foreign uh, entity. And that brings us into the second aspect of what this judgment would look like here, foreign rule. Look at verses 20 and 21. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. You remember the north? Remember we started out in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, in verse 13. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. In other words, from the north, pouring down toward the south. And the Lord said, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose on all the inhabitants of the land. And that's what he's describing here. Verse 21, what will you say when they set as head over you those whom you yourself have taught to be friends with you? What will they say, Judah, when these nations and relationships with them you've cultivated, friendships with them that you've developed, will be placed over you to rule you? I've removed your king, the queen mother, and I've placed foreign powers, relationships with whom you cultivated, to rule you, to subdue you, to bring you into subjection. What would judgment look like? Deposition of their king, foreign rule, and then some very graphic images of humiliation in verses 22 and following. If you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? cry the self-righteous. What did I ever do to deserve this? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. Rape. Perhaps literally, broadly, it's it's the, the pillaging of foreign invaders coming in, raping the land, taking, pillaging, plundering. Uh, This humiliation that they would suffer looks like rape. Look in verse 24. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. You know, as they would take the wheat and toss it into the air, separating the husk from the kernel, the grain. The grain, being heavy, would fall back to the threshing floor. That chaff, the husks, would be like dust. They'd be blown away by the wind, and they'd continually toss it until the chaff had been blown away and the wheat was left. It was a way to separate the chaff from the wheat and the image there is that Judah has become the chaff and would be blown away, drifting away in the wind, scattered, taken into exile. Uh, that humiliation would also look like exposure in verse 26. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. So rape, exposure, which was very shameful, especially in that culture where they were very much covered, especially the women were very much covered and protected their bodies in that way. To be exposed was a shameful and humiliating thing. And yet that's what the Lord is saying. What will this judgment look like? They will lose their autonomy, be under foreign power. They will be embarrassed, humiliated, exposed. And for what reason? Again, they ask, why have these things come upon us? What's the greatness of their sin? Look at 22, uh, second part of the verse. It is for the greatness of your iniquity. Her consistency in sin, not just the greatness of it, but the consistency of it. And you look at somebody like David. David's sin was great. His adultery and his arranged murder 
of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was a, was a horrible thing. But great as his sin was, it wasn't consistent. It wasn't the pattern. But look at verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Well, no. Man can't change the color of his skin. The leopard has spots. He can't change that. It's who he is. It's part and parcel of, of, of his being. Verse 23, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. It's not just that they blew it. It's not just that they committed some horrible sin. They're accustomed to it. It's the way they are. It's their nature. Great sin. Consistent sin. And and vile sin before the Lord. Look at verse 27. I have seen your abominations. Your adulteries, neighings, your lewd whorings, just this unrestrained impulse, lust for sin on the hills and the field. Probably, again, a reference to the high places, the pagan worship, uh, which was spiritually adultery against the Lord, may have in fact involved actual sexual sin as part of the pagan religion, but was adultery against the Lord, this, this pagan false worship. It's taking place. The greatness of her sin, the consistency of her sin, the, the vileness of her sin in the face of the Lord. You know, when the Lord said in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That could be understood that God isn't saying that you prefer another God to me. He's saying you will not enjoy another God in my view before my face. And make me watch that. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet that's exactly what they're doing. I've seen, I've witnessed, I've watched your abominations as you engage in the worship of these pagan deities in my land, in my presence, before my face. So we move from symbols to some very blunt But it ends with this cry, verse 27, very interesting. Woe to you, O Jerusalem, that expression of judgment, that expression of coming sorrow. And the question, how long will it be before you are made clean? At the rate they're going, it doesn't seem like that would ever happen, does it? And you know, you look at your life, you look at mine, you look at the lives of people you know. Have you ever thought, you know, there are people that you just think, you just can't imagine them living for the glory of God. It, you and I, perhaps, were that way at one time. Some of you became believers as adults. Some of you may have even been hostile or opposed to Christian Christianity and to Christians. But he asked that question, not will it ever happen, but how long until it happens? Because I want us to look at something else. That, that question has an answer. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. In a sense, Jeremiah answers his own question. The Lord gives him an answer to that question. Jeremiah 31, 31. Get a little ahead of ourselves ourselves here, but by the time we get to chapter 31, you have forgotten all about this, so we're going to look ahead. Behold, this is 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How long will it be before you are made clean? It'll be until a new covenant arrives, a new covenant emerges, where the Lord enters into a new relationship with his people, and once again they will be his people, and he will be their God. But this time the law won't be written on tablets of stone. It will be written on the hearts of his people. How long? Well, it'll be until Christ remains pure and unstained for us. It will be until Christ fulfills our purpose for us perfectly. It will be until Christ himself suffers the humiliation and degradation of the judgment of God for us, for his people. We're that loincloth, but Christ was pure and spotless. We're that broken vessel, but Christ fulfilled the purpose of God. We are the ones who deserve the judgment and the humiliation, but Christ himself bore that deposition, bore that degradation for you and for me, for all who believe in him, so that you and I would never have to. How long? How long, as Jeremiah asks, will it be before you are made clean? How long will it be before you turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Only till then. And once then, you are clean before the eyes of God. And the day is coming when our Lord returns, when our salvation will be complete, when we are glorified with him. And Jeremiah's answer, or his question, finally, will have the answer. At that time, in glory, we will, in fact, be clean. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus suffered the judgment we deserved. Father, thank you that he is our purity. Thank you that he has fulfilled our purpose. Thank you that he has endured our judgment. But Father, we recognize that even as your people, we are called to be pure, called to fulfill the purpose you have for us, called to live as lights in this nation. And so, Father, we pray that you would forgive us when we have not done that and renew in us steadfastness. Lord, it is easy to be discouraged or fighting against sin within us and sin outside of us can be wearing and discouraging. But Father, we pray that with Christ as our righteousness, we would continue to put sin to death in our hearts and to continue to bear witness to those around us and to the world that you have set a Savior and that we can be clean before you. We pray it in his name. Amen.